Turn with me in your copy of God's Word this morning to Romans chapter 15. Before we get into Romans 15 this morning, I want to just take a brief moment to kind of give you maybe some, I don't know, guidance on interpreting Scripture when we come to passages like the one we come to today. We just meditated on 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, and the reason for that is because I, I simply want us to come to this portion of Scripture in which Paul wraps up his letter to the Romans. And as we do, I want us to remember that all of Scripture is inspired by God. All of it is helpful for the life of the believer. And so when we, when we think about that passage in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, and we, we mull that over, we meditate on it, I, I want you to remember a very important word there. All of Scripture is inspired by God. All of it is breathed out by the Lord. And so in our study of the Word, a, a helpful question is, why is this passage of Scripture in the Bible? Why has God preserve this so that down through the ages his people might come to moments like this and study the word of God. And so when we come to the end of Romans, starting in Romans 15 verse 14, we have the lengthiest of all of Paul's conclusions to his letters. It goes from 15:14 all the way through 16:27. That's a long conclusion, a wordy conclusion. But God's word says that all of scripture is breathed out by God, that it's all helpful that it all equips us to live our lives for Christ. So how do we approach a passage that is simply a conclusion, or in some cases, an introduction to a letter? What are we to glean from it? There, there's three principles that I want you to remember, three things to remember when we study portions of Scripture like this. The, the first thing is this, is, is we need to remember the difference between what is descriptive and what is prescriptive okay so remember the difference between what is descriptive and what is prescriptive it would be the same thing that we understand in how we read the book of acts right we read through the book of acts and we we look and we see a picture of the early church we see the life of the early church described before our eyes and and the account of that it's the same thing we look at narratives we want to remember the same thing the difference between what is descriptive and prescriptive is very important when we think about this for how we apply God's Word to our lives. And so what we have in this passage of Scripture is a passage that is meant to um, describe, we see a picture of, of the Apostle Paul and his love for the people he's writing to. It is not meant to prescribe necessarily what should be normative for the Christian or even the, the church necessarily. It may or may not. We'll talk more about that in a few minutes, but it does describe how Paul, an apostle and a leader, interacted with the people of God in Rome. So what is the difference between prescriptive and descriptive? Second, we need to understand and, and, and take note of the two questions, what and why? What and why? When we come to this passage, we understand what, when I ask what, gives me facts. When I ask why, it gives me principled reasons behind those facts. So we come to a passage like Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven 37 that says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. We ask what, then what do we get? We get a very easy application immediately. What? I'm to love the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. When I come to a passage that says, I hope to travel and see you soon on my way to Spain, and I ask what, what do I get? Well, Paul's wanting to travel to Spain and hopes to go and see the Roman church on the way. So sometimes we read that and we go, well, that doesn't mean anything for my life. That's why we take the next step and we ask why. Why? When we start asking why, then we start understanding the principles behind what led Paul to write what he wrote and what led Paul to do what he did. So know the answer to what and the answer to why in the passage. The third thing I want you to remember is this, is that we, we want to ask, where are the principles seen and described, when we ask why, where are the principles that are seen and described in this passage taught more clearly or even commanded elsewhere in Scripture? 
Where, where do we see these principles? And we ask why, and we see these things at work, and we'll, we'll, we'll answer four why questions this morning. When we look at this passage, we'll ask and answer four why questions. So when we do, we want to think about how are those questions answered elsewhere in Scripture, or even how are they commanded? We see those principles, how are they commanded in Scripture in very clear ways, because when we see that, what we come to realize is, is this is a man who is serving the Lord, living for the Lord, and living out the calling of the Lord in his life in a very real and practical way. And we have an example of it here in Romans 15, 14 through 16, 27. So those three principles, those three things that we want to remember should be in our minds as we come to our text this morning. So let's read Romans 15, beginning in verse 14 together. The Word of God says this, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. But on some points, I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder, because of the grace given me by God, to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience, by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Holy Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ, and thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. So we come to this text, and, and let's ask the what question first. Let's make, we need to always make sure we understand the what of a passage, right? And so let's ask the what. What's going on here? First off, in verse 14, we see Paul writing to the church. Again, he says he has this affectionate care, that familial relationship. I myself am satisfied with you, my brothers. He's writing my brothers to a people he has not yet met. But you'll remember that earlier in chapter 1, he wrote to them that he rejoices, what? That their faith is being proclaimed throughout the world. So he knows of their faith. He knows that they are brothers in Christ because he knows that they, like him, have been saved by Christ, saved into the family of God. So verse 14, we move into verse 15. He writes that he, affectionately to them. He commends them. And then in verse 15, he says, But, but, in the midst of this, I wrote to you with full, I'm satisfied about you, my brothers, but on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder. So he says, I'm satisfied with you. I have confidence in you and your faith, but I also wrote boldly to you. So Paul's confidence in them and the fact that they are indeed believers and brothers in Christ, his confidence in that does not negate the fact that he has concerns for them and where they stand doctrinally and how they live out their faith in the world around them. So we have Paul's confidence in them and then Paul's concern for them. He says that he wrote boldly about them by way of reminder. He gives them gospel reminders. That's something that's important for our lives, isn't it? That we would have gospel reminders. And that's what Paul says. He, Paul, Paul says, we're, you're full of goodness. You're filled with knowledge. You're able to instruct one another. But on some points, I've written to you very boldly by way of reminder. We need gospel reminders. We need reminders of the truth of God's word. We need reminders of the truth of what he's done in our lives. We need reminders of what he calls us to do, how he calls us to live, because we are quick to forget, and we are often in need of reminding. And that's what Paul does here. Verses 15 to 16, he goes on, and he starts describing his ministry. He says, because of the grace given me by God. That might ring 
kind of a, a reminder that he understands his ministry is given to him by God. In, in chapter 1, verse 5, he says, We have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith. In Romans 12, 3, the same thing. He describes his ministry as, as that of one that is from grace, from God's grace. That is God's grace that's brought it about. It is not of his own doing. It's a gift of God in his life to have the ministry that he has. And so he talks about that again here. Because of the grace given me by God to do what? To be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God. So that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. So Paul talks about his ministry. He describes it as a gift of God's grace. And then he starts using some some very vivid Old Testament imagery and metaphors. We know it's metaphors when he, he's, he's not saying, I am a literal priest, because he describes himself as a priest and then offering the Gentiles as a sacrifice. We understand he is talking metaphorically. Why? Because he's not literally bringing Gentiles and offering them as a literal sacrifice to the Lord, right? We understand that. No, instead he's saying that I am carrying out the function of the priest under the great high priest of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles. Why? Because I am serving them with the gospel of God so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable and sanctified by the Holy Spirit. It is not Paul that sanctifies. It is not Paul that consecrates. It is not Paul that makes holy. It is the work of God that makes them holy through the gospel. He comes as a priest to minister to the people of God. We move on through the passage. He continues to describe that and we'll talk a little more but he says i will not venture to speak of anything except christ what he has accomplished through me so we see him describing christ's work and his work right together we understand that those things go hand in hand in the living out of his faith the carrying out of his ministry he describes that for i will um to bring the gentiles to obedience right by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God. When he's talking about to, to bring the Gentiles to obedience, it is elsewhere described as the obedience of faith in chapter 1. And so he's talking about them coming to faith, the obedience of faith, salvation. And he says this happens by what? It happens by word and deed. It happens, it's happened by powers of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God. He's simply describing how God uses him. By his life and by his words, the things he teaches, the things that he does. He's talking about things that God does and stirs in him by the power of signs and wonders that God moves through him and is doing great and mighty works to attest to his life and to his words. And it is indeed the power of the Spirit of God that is displayed in his ministry. Finally, in verse 19 we see that Paul is writing at a point in his life where he has concluded his gospel ministry in the area around Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum. What that means is, is if, if you remember, if you ever look in your Bible and the maps and you look at his first, second, third missionary journeys, his first missionary journey is kind of smaller. It's kind of the shortest of the three. And then the second and third one, he loops all the way around, makes this big circuit up and goes northwest and around and back to Jerusalem. He's done that three times, and he's covered all the area, all the way around Jerusalem and up to Illyricum, which would be around modern-day Serbia. He's done it. He's he's completed the task that God has given him to share the gospel in those areas. He's made sure the gospel is known, and he's done the work of planting churches in those areas. And now he writes to the people, We'll cover this next week, but he says, This is the reason, in verse 22, why I've so often been hindered from coming to you, but now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I've enjoyed your company for a while. Paul is in a moment where he looks and he says, I've completed the task God has given me thus far, and now it's time to take the next step. That is the what's of this passage. Now, let's ask four why questions. Why? Why? Here's the first one. Why was Paul satisfied? Why was Paul satisfied? Isn't that a, isn't that a great statement that you would love to hear from the Apostle Paul that he wrote the church 
at Grace Baptist and said, I myself am satisfied about you. What a, what a glorious statement to receive from the Apostle Paul for the Roman believers, someone they had never met but they had heard much about. And they receive a letter from him, and after he's gone through all that he's said in Romans 1, all the way up through 14 or halfway through 15, just imagine hearing all that he said, all that doctrine that he spoke about, all the application we've covered. And then he says, I myself am satisfied about you. Why in the world would Paul be satisfied with them? Well, he, he explains. He, he explains that the reason is that he sees traits of a healthy body of believers. The reason Paul's satisfied is he says that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. He, this, this isn't a, a definitive list of, of the three characteristics of a healthy church. We don't write a book on these three things and say this is the end all of the healthy church, but this is, this is indeed three, in, three important traits of a healthy body of believers, a healthy church, that, that they're full of goodness, filled with knowledge, able to instruct one another. He's commending them, the same thing he did in chapter 1, verse 8, in the introduction. He obviously has a care and a concern and a, a genuine commendation and satisfaction of the people. He says in verse one, chapter 1, verse 8, he says, I thank my God through the Lord Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed throughout the world. And I'm satisfied about you because you're, you're full of knowledge. You're full of, or full of goodness. You're, you're, you're filled with all knowledge. And you're able to instruct one another. When, when he says full of goodness, that's in contrast. Think about the letter to the church at Corinth, right? He doesn't tell them that. He, when, he, when he writes Corinth, what's he doing? He's rebuking them. He's dealing with sin issues. He's speaking pretty hard at times, right? But here, he's commending them. He's referring to the Romans' good conduct, He's referring to their, their kindness, their, their generosity towards others, their, their ethics, their moral goodness, the word is describing. And, and this is in light of what we read in Romans 3, 13, 18. Remember Romans 3, 13, 18, where he, he quotes Psalm 14? And he talks about that there is no one who is good, none who is righteous. Remember that? But here he says, you're full of goodness. Now, why would he say that? Because he understands that there is none who are good outside of Christ. None who are seeking him. But in Christ, we see goodness. In Christ, we see that one of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, 22 to 23 is what? Goodness. That one of the evidences that we are in Christ is that we are good. And this wasn't some occasional good deed. It wasn't something where they said, oh, Paul's coming. Let's look really good for Paul. Or let's do something good at Christmas time, and every time else in the year, let's just live however we want to live. That wasn't the issue. No, he says that they are full of goodness. It was plentiful. It was constant. It was something that was consistently a part of their lives. It was fruit, evidence of their faith. It was the working out of what he wrote in Ephesians 2.10. That Remember in verse 8 and 9, he said, It's by grace you're saved. Right? It's by grace, not by works. But then in verse 10, he says that we have been saved to do good works, which God prepared beforehand for us. And here, they are known for their goodness. We should absolutely be known for our moral, ethical, and relational goodness. We should. People should look and go, wow, those people at Grace Baptist, they're good. They're good to one another. They are morally good. They are ethically good. They live in integrity. They're not banking on that for salvation, but we do see it. That's the result of God's work in their lives. We should be good, filled with goodness. The second trait he sees is what? That they're, they're filled with knowledge. They're filled with knowledge. He commends the Roman believers for this, I think, immediately in the contrast of Galatians. Right? You remember Galatians, what he writes to them? Uh, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? How quickly you desert. What are you doing? But here to the, to the Romans, he says, you're, you're filled with all knowledge. 
They have an understanding and a knowledge of their faith. They were doctrinally sound. This is something that, that Paul loves. It's something he works for. It's something he, he longs to see in God's people, that they would know God. They would know what they believe. In Colossians 2, 2-3, he shares his desire for the Laodiceans. He says that his desire is that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of of God's mystery, which is Christ. That, that's Paul's longing, is maturity. They would grow in their understanding, their knowledge of the Lord and the mystery of the gospel that's been revealed by God. His desire was people, that people would know Christ and know what they believe. Do you know what you believe? Are you doctrinally sound? Or, or do you just come and hear something, and then regurgitate it. That, that's not the goal. The goal is not for you to come in and to be able to hear something and then just regurgitate it. The goal is for you to come in, digest it, know it, and stand firm in it. The goal is to know what we believe, to be doctrinally sound. The third trait he points out is that they are able to instruct one another. They're able to instruct one another. The, the word he uses here is not just teaching. It's more of a corrective, a rebuking. It's an instruction that, that caused them to correct some sort of wrong thinking or living. They have the ability to do that. They have the ability to sit down and to teach someone in such a way that if someone is wrong in their thinking, they can correct it. Because why? Because they're full of knowledge. They understand what they believe. They're doctrinally sound. They're stable in their thinking. And when they hear wrong thinking, they can correct it. They can teach. They can instruct. Again, I think in contrast to Hebrews. Remember the writer of Hebrews in chapter 5, verse 12, he says, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. He doesn't say that to the Roman believers. He says you are able to instruct one another. They were able to correct one another because they knew what they believed. They spoke truth into the believers' lives. They spoke truth into one another's lives. Listen, one of the marks of a healthy church is that we are able to instruct one another. Because when we do that, it corrects us and strengthens us individually, and it guards our church from false doctrine. It guards. It protects this body of believers when you hear something that is wrong thinking, it is love that leads you to say, you know what, I, I respect that, but, but that's a little off. That's not what Scripture says. Scripture says this, that is love to correct that. Why? It's love for the body and the individual because it strengthens the individual's walk with the Lord. And it guards our church from wrong belief, from false doctrine. We need to be a people who are able to instruct one another. The second question, second why question. So the first one was, why was Paul satisfied? The second one, why did Paul speak boldly? Why, why did he speak boldly? He says, but on some points I've written to you very boldly by way of reminder. Why? Well, because there's a time for bold words. There is absolutely a time for us to be bold in what we say. Think about what Paul was bold about in Romans. Theologically, he was very bold about man's depravity. He meant no words when he stood and he said, listen, it doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile, where you come from. Outside of the work of Christ, you are lost. You're hopeless. He was very bold about that. He was very bold that nothing merits salvation, that you're only saved, you're only justified by faith. Very bold about that. He's very bold about God's sovereignty. We went through Romans 9 through 11, a difficult portion of God's word. He's very bold about it. He doesn't mince words about God's sovereignty. When we think about his theological boldness, we also see practical boldness, don't we? You remember, he gets into Romans 12. He's very bold about what the transformed life should look like, that our lives in Christ should look different. We should be transformed. We should not conform to the ways of the world. He's very bold about what it looks like to love one another. How does that work out? 
He's very bold about the fact that as we do so, that we should submit to our governing authorities. That wasn't popular then. It's not popular now. He was bold about it. He was very bold about the fact that we are not to cause a brother to stumble in their faith. We talked about that the last few weeks. Again, Paul minces no words. He's bold about it. Now, I think, I think there's, there's maybe three areas, I would say, that we need to be bold in. Perhaps more. But I think there's definite three areas we see in Scripture at times that we need to be bold in what we say to one another. The, the first area, I would say, is in matters of doctrinal error. We need to be bold about that. We already mentioned it, but Galatians 1.6, he writes, and right away, six verses in, he says, I am astonished, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ, and you're turning to a different gospel. Paul, Paul doesn't mince words. He's bold. He says, I, I'm shocked. I'm sitting down as I write this because I have to be sitting down. I'm, I'm absolutely astonished that you've gone after a false gospel. So in, in matters of doctrinal error, we have to be bold in our words. You remember the same thing happened? It's not just writing to Galatians. He shares about it in Galatians. The same thing happens in Acts when, when Peter kind of goes off track a little bit. Paul doesn't go, oh, shucks, <laughs> poor guy. No, Paul's bold. He doesn't care who it is. This is Peter, walked with Christ, right? The one who had the great confession before Christ, that Christ says, on this rock, my church will be built. This is this Peter. And Paul says, whoa, 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 back up. You, you've got some things wrong here, Peter. See, when doctrinal error comes in, it's a time to be bold. The second area, I would say, is in matters of sin. When sin abounds, when sin is present, it's a time to be bold. We see Paul being bold in 1 Corinthians 5, 1 through 2. He says, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among the pagans. For a man has his father's wife and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. Paul Paul's very bold. Paul doesn't say, you know what? It's reported that there's some sexual immorality among you. Bless his heart. He doesn't say that. No. He says this should not be tolerated. As a matter of fact, people outside of the church don't even tolerate it. But here, you're tolerating it? The people who have been consecrated, who have been set apart for the glory of God, who are called to be holy because he is holy, you're tolerating it? And seeing this man live in sin who claims to be a brother, a follower of Christ? No, you can't just sit back. That's arrogance. You should be mourning over him. <laughs> he needs to be removed. Paul's bold in matters of sin. A third area of boldness that we see from, see from Paul elsewhere is in matters of church unity. Matters of church unity. And again, we'll, we'll come to that in Romans. He'll bring us to that as an important issue in his conclusion. But we see... In Philippians 4, 2 through 3, Paul writing in the midst of a letter of great joy, great unity, the letter of Philippians, he says, I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with, with me in the gospel. He he just he takes a moment to say, listen, there is some fighting going on between these two ladies. And it should not be so. They should be standing as one. They should be agreeing in the Lord. That, that, that's equivalent. You understand that, that Paul's writing a letter, and this letter is to be read in front of the whole church, and he knows it's going to be circulated to other churches. That's okay. Because Paul is so passionate about unity. Why? Because he knows that through unity, remember we talked about last week, that when the church is the most unified, she is the most effective in glorifying her Lord. Paul understands that. And because Paul understands that, when there's moments of disunity, he is bold. And he says, listen, 
while we're writing about this, brothers in Philippi, uh, we've got this issue with Yodia and Syntyche, and just so that we're all on the same page, they need to be agreeing in the Lord. And I need your help in making that come about. Church unity, matters of sin, doctrinal error, all areas that we need to be bold in speaking up. And of course, we do that in grace, truth, and love in the way we do it. Third question, third why question. Why was Paul proud? Why was Paul proud? Isn't pride a bad thing? Didn't we have a sermon, was it chapter 12, verse, what was that, 12, 3? Yeah, twelve three. doesn't he say, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought, but to think with sober judgment. Didn't he say that? Didn't we spend a whole day on that one verse? But here, here all of a sudden, Paul in, in, in verse 17 says, In Christ Jesus, then I have reason to be proud of my work for God. What's going on, Paul? Which one is it? Well, What's Paul's pride rooted in? In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud. In Christ Jesus. That's where his pride is rooted. What is the purpose of his work? It's for God. His pride is not rooted in self. It is not rooted in bringing glory and honor to me, see, we can be proud of Christ-centered, God-driven work. And we see that in Paul. We see it in the man who, who had described himself with this, this once having this self-centered pride of saying, listen, I was the Hebrew of Hebrews, right? I was the Hebrew of Hebrews. I was a, a proud, zealous Pharisee, had been transformed into a pride that glorified in God's work through him. So he was taken and transformed from a man who would say, listen, this is who I was. This was my heritage. This was how great I was, how religious I was. And now he doesn't say all that. He just says, in Christ Jesus, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. It is Christ-centered, God-driven work. In Christ Jesus, think about, let me just read to you some text that he says and and expresses his driving passion that he is rooted in Christ. Galatians 2.20, he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. All of his life was about living in Christ. Christ, Philippians 2, 12 to 13, he says, therefore, my beloved, if you, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but now more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Paul's calling them to live out their faith, to work. Why? Because it is God who works in them. It is in Christ. Galatians 6, 13 to 14, he wraps up that letter where he speaks so boldly to them and confronts them with their sin and their false beliefs. And he says, For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised, that they may boast in your flesh. People are wanting to boast in what people did, boast in religiosity. But then he says in verse 14, he says, But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Paul says, listen, I'm going to boast, but listen, my boasting is not in me. My boasting is not in just what I have accomplished through my means and my power and my intellect. My boasting is in the cross of Jesus Christ who saves and glorifies the Father. My boast is in Christ, and that's all I will boast in. Colossians 3.17, he tells the Colossian Christian, he says, Whatever you do, in word or Deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God and the Father, or God the Father, through Him. Whatever you do, give glory to the Lord. Do it all in the name of the Lord. We work rooted in Christ. So Christ, uh, Paul is rooted in Him, in Christ. But his purpose, his, his drive is for the glory of God. He understands that all he does is for God's glory because he understands that all God does is for his glory. 
He understands that, that when, when God speaks through Isaiah in chapter 43, he says, Fear not when you walk through the fires. When you walk through the waters, I will be with you. And he goes on down in the great word of assurance. He says that everyone who is called by name, my name, whom I have created for my glory, whom I have formed and made. God says, I will be with you. I will be with you. And we hear, hear that truth that everyone who is called by his name, who he has created, has done so for his glory. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10, he says, So whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all for what reason? That people will pat you on the back, that people will know how great of a person you are, that people would know how great Grace Baptist Church is, that they would think, wow, I really like that church, those people are really nice, that's a really good neighbor I have? No. He says, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do all for the glory of God. In Philippians 1, verse 11, Verse 9 through 11 is Paul's prayer where he prays, he prays for the Philippian believers and he ends the prayer by saying that his prayer is that they will be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and the praise of God. Not to their glory, not to his glory, but to the glory and the praise of God. In Romans eleven thirty six, he says he concludes it, he brings it all to a close of what he's been saying in Romans 11. He says, for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be the glory forever. It is the driving force of Paul that God would be exalted, that he would be glorified. In 2 Corinthians 4.15, we talk about and we hear about him talking and describing their ministry and about how they carry about the greatness of God in jars of clay and in, 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 in fragile pots that can just be broken. And he comes to the end of that passage, he says, For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving. Why? To the glory of of God. Paul's longing, Paul's driving purpose is that God would be glorified in him. Why do you live? Why are you doing what you're doing? Are you rooted in Christ? Are you driving toward the purpose of bringing God glory? Or are you simply striving for a comfortable, happy, easy life? Are you simply wanting to live out the American dream and pad your 401k and have fun and build up all your stuff? Or are you driven by living in Christ for his glory to exalt the name of Christ? Are you wasting your life on things that will not make a hill of beans difference in eternity? Or are you storing up treasures in heaven that moth and rust will not destroy? What are you doing? Paul left a legacy of God's glory. When it was all said and done, the people that Paul were around exalted the name Christ. When it's all said and done, what will people do that, that have been around you? What kind of ripple will go out from your life? What kind of effect will you leave? What will be the resounding theme of your life? The resounding theme of Paul's life was the glory of God, and I want that to be the resounding theme of my life, that God's name would be exalted. I want that to be the resounding theme of your life, the glory of God would be exalted and his name lifted on high. I want that to be the resounding theme of this church, not that Grace Baptist is a great and awesome church. No, that Grace Baptist serves an awesome and a great and a holy God, and we glorify his name. That is what I want to be the resounding message of this body of believers. It was Paul's driving force, the glory of God, and I want it to be ours. The fourth question. Why did Paul continue his gospel ministry? You ever thought about that? Paul's at a pretty good spot to retire. Kick back in his villa in Jerusalem. Maybe get an additional home in another's town. He doesn't do that. He doesn't do that. Why does he continue? Paul pursues without ceasing the ambition that God gave him. Paul is relentless to carry out the mission of God in his life. Look at, look at what he says. He says that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. 
This is a man looking back going, I've had a successful ministry. I've done what God's called me to do. I, I took the gospel to the Gentiles. I, I've, I've completed the task that God gave me. He, I, I've, I've carried it out successfully. But for Paul, this is not a moment to hang up his coat. This is not a moment that he kicks back. You know what he says? He says, and thus, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel not where Christ has already been named. I'm not going to just keep making the circuit and go around and around and around. No, my ambition is I'm going to go forward and I'm going to preach Christ where he has not been named so that those who have never been told of him will see and those who have never heard will understand. See, Paul's ambition is wrapped up in God's mission. You understand that? That God's mission that he's given us is what? That we would go and make disciples of all nations. And Paul understood that. He heard the resounding call of the Missio Dei, God's mission, that we are called to go. And Paul says, I'm going. And God had made clear that he was going to the Gentiles. He was the apostle to the Gentiles. He knew that. And he said, there's more Gentiles. I'm going. I've done what he's called me to here. I'm going there. I'm not sitting back. I'm not going to just retire and sit and be fat and happy. No, I'm going to go. I'm going to do whatever it takes to be one whose ambition is to continue in God's mission. God has given us a clear task. He's given us a clear mission to make the gospel known, to make Christ known, to see people come to faith and baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit from all nations, all tribes, all languages. He's called us to do it. He didn't put a time stamp on that. He didn't say you do that until you're 45, you're 50, you're 60, you're 80. He said do it. He didn't say it's going to look like this, it's going to be in this spot necessarily. He just said do it. And so our ambition should be wrapped up in that mission. Just like Paul's. Is it? That's the question. That's a hard question that I think we have to ask ourselves. We have to ask ourselves questions related to this. Is, is my ambition wrapped up in God's mission? Am I more concerned about my savings account than I am about people being saved on the account of God's work through Christ on the cross? What am I more concerned about? Am I, am I more concerned about being a, a parent who has nice and pretty and healthy and successful children? that I'd look like a perfect parent? Or am I more concerned about being a parent who raises up missionaries to the next generation? Am I more concerned about being a, a parent who faithfully tells my children about Christ, that they would trust Christ and go to the ends of the earth? Am I more concerned about being a parent that teaches my children that it's not just about being a successful businessman, but it's about being a businessman that exalts the name of Christ and lives for the glory of God? It's not about just being a, a physical therapist that goes in and, and clocks the, the time clock and leaves and goes out and goes about his day, but it's about being one who takes opportunities to care for people in their time of need and exalt the name of Christ and share the gospel. What am I more concerned about? Am, am, I, am I more ambitious about winning a soccer game or about winning the souls of those I play soccer with? Am I more ambitious about winning a race? Or am I more ambitious about running the race that God has set before me? Where do our ambitions lie? Is our ambition in padding our retirement so that we can be done and go, hey, I've lived a good life. I, I came to church. I've been faithful. Now I'm just going to sit back and relax. As a matter of fact, thanks be to God for COVID because now I can sit back and relax at home and not even have to go to church. Doesn't ring true to you because you're here and there's nothing online right now, right? Where's our ambition? Is your ambition to retire? Or is your ambition so wrapped up in God's mission that you say, I may retire from my job, but I'm never retiring from the mission of making God's name known. I may retire from my job, what anchors me here, and you know what that does? That frees me up to go there. What would that look like? That you retire from your profession, 
so that you might move away and live among the nations? What might it look like that all that you focused on, maybe you can't go, maybe physically you're not able. But in that moment you say, I'm retired, I physically can't go, I can't move to another nation. But all of my energy is going to be be towards equipping people, encouraging people, praying for people, helping people do that. What is your ambition? Paul's ambition was to see God's gospel, the mystery of the gospel, declared to people who had never heard. What is yours? It's going to look different in all of our lives. For, for Paul, it was being a pioneer missionary. Paul said, you know what? They've heard. There's a church there. I'm going to leave it to Apollos, Barnabas, Silas, Timothy, Titus. You guys build the church. I'm going to go tell more. And when I tell them, I'm going to raise up people to build their church too. That was Paul's. That's what it looked like to be a pioneer missionary. But for you, that may not be the case. It may. I I refuse to believe. I'm never, never going to submit to the belief that God is not raising up missionaries from this place. I'm never going to do that. I will always be convinced that God has blessed Grace Baptist with a solid foundation with people who love him deeply with incredible resources. Not so that we can sit here all fat and happy in our theology, but so that we can mobilize and send people to the nations. So I'm convinced. I don't know who it is. I'm convinced that God is raising up more people. There are already people in the nations from here. We've got people scattered. But I'm convinced God's raising up more. I'm convinced that some of our young people, they're going to do it. Some of you sitting in here today, they're going to say, hey, Mom, you're right. I do want to be a teacher. But it's going to be in another country. I'm convinced that there are families who are going to be so ambitious about God's mission that they say, hey, this is time and we have the opportunity, let's go. I refuse to believe that that's not the case for some. But I also know that it's not the case for all. So I know know that for some of us, it means being a faithful parent. Share the gospel with your kids. And I know for others, it means being an honest, hardworking plumber. And I know for others, it means being a teacher that goes week in and week out and deals with all the craziness and frustrations of a pandemic so that you can minister to kids in their class. And I know for others, it's being a businessman who is not shrewd and dishonest. I know for others as being a mill worker, others being a doctor, others being a painter. For others being a FedEx man, physical therapist, an accountant. God bless your hearts. For others it's being a church planner. Maybe you're not the pioneer missionary, but you say, you know what? Josh Rosentreter needs help planting a church in Columbus. I can do that. I can move four hours north and gather with a small group of believers and work to see the glory of God in Columbus, Ohio. I don't know what it means for you. I know I know where I've fallen. know that I had to wrestle hard with this maybe that's why it gets me every time 
Because I remember being in Thailand and thinking, I may need to come back here for a long time. And I remember having to wrestle through, God, do you want me to be a pastor at a Bible Belt church where there's lots of believers? Or do you want me to be in Thailand when I say Jesus and people look at me like I don't know or like they've never heard because they had it? I had to wrestle through that, and I want you to wrestle through it. Because I know where God left me. And it's called me to pastor and by His grace raise up people who would go. I want you to wrestle through that. I don't know exactly what your ambition is. But I know that all of our mission is to go and make disciples of all nations. Our mission is that the peoples would praise Him. So let's stand and let's sing. May the peoples praise Him. And as we do, let's wrap our ambition up in God's mission. Let's pray. God, we stand to sing you to sing to you. God, we stand to worship you, the one who saved us by your great, abundant, amazing grace. And God, we are thankful for the testimony of Paul who's whose ambition was so wrapped up in your mission that he did not stop. He refused to settle. He refused to retire. God, he continued to press forward in Christ for your glory to make you known. God, would you lead us to be passionate followers of you to live our lives in Christ for your glory, consumed by your mission, that our every ambition would be wrapped up in the longing to see people praise you, whether that's people at Pulaski County High School or whether that's people in Columbus, Ohio, or whether that's people in Frankfurt, Germany. God, we want to see people praise you. We want to proclaim the glorious gospel of the riches, the grace of Christ. Oh God, use us. Use us, we pray. In the name of Christ our Lord. Amen.